When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sorry about the noise. My neighbour's sanding his deck. My motto? Don't work on your deck. Play on it. Life's good with a Trex deck. Low maintenance with a 25-year residential warranty. Trex, the world's number one decking brand. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. A great pleasure, as always, to have you with us for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life. And today we celebrate the sporting life of a gentleman who is one of the most familiar faces and voices and has been on Australian television and Australian sport for many years. He is an icon of the industry that uh, I'm lucky enough to work in and it's a great pleasure to have Ken Callender with me as my guest. Kenny, welcome. Thank you, Peter. You are very much associated with the common man and you always have been. Yeah, well, uh, I grew up in an average suburban household, little fibro place, and uh, I I think that I always remembered my roots and uh, I always felt, whether I was writing in the paper or on the radio or the television, that I re- represented the people of uh, uh, Bankstown and uh, uh, Marylands and Parramatta just as much as I represented the big money towns. It's a bit like uh, Broad Meadows in Melbourne. Yeah, and they're the sort of people that you hang out with, you, that well, you have a beer with. They're the biggest punters. I actually yeah. live at Randwick now, which is getting to be a bit upper class, <laughs> but uh, I still uh, go down the pub with good, solid Aussies. Has it got you into trouble with the top end of town over the years? I don't think so, no. Uh, I, uh, without patting myself on the back, I think I've got uh, the manners and the confidence to mix with anyone. And uh, I find whether you're at the top end of town or uh, in Struggle Street, there's plenty of good people and there might just be the odd uh, one or two that aren't so good. When you go, Kenny, does that work ethic still uh occur in your mind is it still there because I find if I go to the races socially there's still that little bit of work that goes on in my head about it I don't know about work but uh, I can honestly say from the very very first time I went to the races I was hooked Uh, I love going it's what I like doing I love the excitement of the track whether it's the uh, the racing the bookmakers uh, having a bet or just talking to people and watching the horses Uh, I will say now uh, the, the odd thing will happen and I'll say, geez, I wish I was writing a column this week. Mm. Yeah, something like that, definitely, yeah. You never lose that. And uh, I was one of the fortunate few uh, whose hobby become their job and I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed work. It was never work to me as such. And uh, I always love going to Melbourne because uh, uh, this might get me sacked in Sydney, but I always found particularly the people I, I mixed with in Melbourne were just so, they loved to drink a bet and enjoying sport. And uh, just a small anecdote, I remember when I first went to Melbourne, I'd gone broke, I was probably uh, 19 or 20, and we'd done our money on the Saturday, and uh, a newfound friend from Melbourne said, are you coming to the football tomorrow? 
I said it was on today. I knew Collingwood had played Carlton or whatever that day. Mm. He said, no, 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 they're the, they're the sissies. He said, the Fair Dinkum Football, the association is on tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and I went to see Port Melbourne play. Oh, yeah. And I reckon I saw 15 fights. Yeah. And only about five was on the field. <laughs> <laughs> was that at the old port ground? Yes, it, it was. I've yeah. spent many a yeah. day there. Corey, and I can still there. remember Cerise and Blue, I think, were there coming. Yes. Yeah. You talked about racing and the egalitarian nature of racing. Is it the most egalitarian of sports? Because you're just as likely to be rubbing shoulders with the local garbologist as you are with the Prime Minister. Yeah, I reckon so. Uh, Bill Waterhouse, uh, the, the former big bookmaker, said uh, it's the... Uh, uh, the only place where all men are equal, on the turf and under it. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> very true. And it is, it's got that friendly nature about it. It doesn't matter whether you've got millions of dollars to no, your name or whether no. you are, you know, a, a bloke who works 60 hours a week in a blue-collar job. Everyone on a race course intermingles. I think Jack Ingham, the former Chicken King, uh, epitomised that. He was, uh, like, they sold the chicken business for about a billion and the money was... Uh, Never really a problem for Jack. He was born uh, into a, a pretty wealthy family. But he'd knock around and try and get a tip off uh, uh, Billy the Butcher at the races if he could. It was uh, everyone mixed together. Now, I haven't seen you for a little while. I've got to say, you're looking really well. You're got feeling fit? I'm like Gunshind. I've gone grey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there's a couple of us like that in this room then. Are there certain pictures that are indelible in your mind from all the racing that you've seen over the years? Yeah, I think so. Uh, uh, the most famous one was Greg Hall waving his whip yeah. <laughs> on Doremus when he was uh, beaten by Martin Power in the 1997 Melbourne Cup. And Jimmy Cassidy's famous quote, he said, I've never ever seen a bloke that excited to run second. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Jimmy thought he was beaten too. <laughs> what a great cup that was. Those. Yeah, it was. Two yeah. great horses, two great yeah. jockeys. Yeah. And Kerry Packer unleashing on the winner, about uh, nine to two to five to two. Well, you should know. Because yeah. you did a little bit of uh, Mr. Packer's uh, punting over there. I did a little, you? yes. What was the biggest bet you ever put on? Was it seven figures? Did it ever get to that? No, not no. The biggest bet I ever put on for Kerry Packer was two hundred and fifty thousand uh, on a horse called Bletchencore at Randwick. He won by about an eyelash. I think they called for two photos as they did in those days. Uh, I wasn't sure if he'd won or not. And I rung him after the race and I said, gee, that was close, boss. He said, that's a very good horse. He said, that second horse will never, ever beat him again. He said, he won't see which way he goes next time. Well, I don't think Bletchencore won another race. And the second horse was called Red Anchor. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so Kerry was very lucky to collect. How did it come to pass, Kenny, that you were doing Mr. Packer's punting for him? Uh, he rung me one day at Rose Hill and he said... Um, Mate, you do us a favour and go down and put a bet on for me. And I knew all the bookies. I could get credit and, and all. He said, I'm here sitting watching a kid's cricket match and it's very bloody boring. Or he might have even used stronger expletives. Mm-hmm. And he said, we you go down and put 40000 on, let's call it Harry the Horse? And I did. And uh, I can't even remember whether it won or lost, but that started it. And, of course, come the famous story, one day he rang up and said to me, uh, uh, it was at Rose Hill again, he said, mate, go down and put 60,000 on sunglasses. I said, I can't, boss. I said, Ian Chaplin, Mike Gibson are about to throw to me. I said, the cross is in less than 30 seconds. I said, 
if I go down, if I if I'm not here, they'll cross to an empty screen." And he said, "Son, who do you think owns the effing television station?" <laughs> <laughs> so the bet was duly placed. The bet was placed, and they crossed over. And, uh, of course, I wasn't there. And they said, oh, there seems to be a technical glitch at uh, Rose Hill. And the guy who was the floor manager, a chap called Mike Moore, who was a beautiful bloke, he was stationed at Rose Hill. He had three or four kids. Beautiful, beautiful man. I worked with him for years. And when I come back, he said, mate, he said, uh, I tried to cover for you. He said, I, I've tried to make up excuse. He said, mate, I can't tell outright lies. I've got a wife and four kids and a mortgage. I said, Mike, don't worry about it. It'll be all right. He said, I don't think it will be this time. <laughs> well, of course, when I appeared next week, he said, didn't someone say something to you? I said, no. <laughs> yeah, strange about that. Yeah. Uh, the phrase, Kenny, colourful Sydney racing identity has mm. been bandied around for a long time. I bet uh, even apart from some of the names you've just mm. mentioned there, you're probably associated with some very interesting characters over the years in Correct, your time. Correct, yeah. Melbourne people used to always think that Sydney was the hub of... Uh, whatever was uh, crooked in racing. They're probably partly right and partly wrong. But I think racing today, Peter, is is extremely honest. And it's been cleaned up because prize money's so big, you haven't got the punters, they can't get on at the racetrack like they once could. But even in those days, a lot of the people suspected a lot more was going on than really was going on. One last point before we take our first break and then we yeah. go back on your journey. Yeah. Do you support concepts like the Everest and the All-Star Mile, these big money races which have basically been made out of nothing? I've got an open mind. I'm all for trying something. And the Everest was Peter Volandis's baby, and he's, he virtually said, whether he admits it or not, blow Melbourne, we're going to have a go at here and make something big in the spring. We'd, we'd handed over the spring to Melbourne probably a little too easy, and then they were encroaching a little bit on the autumn. So... I think he said to himself, hey, we're going to have a go. And he introduced the Everest. Now, I'm not a huge fan of the Everest. I think it could be done a little better. But I take my hat off to him for having a go. And it certainly captured public's imagination. So, again, I'm wrong. He's right. Uh, the All-Star Mole in Melbourne, uh, which has obviously had teething troubles, but they'll sort that out, I think was Melbourne saying, hey, don't think you can walk over us. We'll come up with something ourselves. Now, whether it could be done better, I'm not sure. I've grown up on the Melbourne Cup, the Cox Plate, the Doncaster, and the Golden Slipper. But, you know, when the Golden Slipper started, uh, if people had have adopted the attitude it was wrong, we'd have never had a Golden Slipper. Mm. And, and it's only uh, 63 years old or something. So uh, I think I've got to look at the Everest that way. They're having a go... They've made it Sydney's big spring race. All right, we're going to go from the present to the past on the other side of the break and find out where the Ken Calendar journey began. And what a pleasure it is to have Ken as my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. More with Kenny coming up after the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hope you're enjoying the chat with Ken Callender, an icon of racing, an icon of uh, broadcasting, of racing and broadcasting of sport, and we'll talk more about the wide world of sports a little bit later on. Kenny, where did you grow up? I grew up in the uh, Sydney suburb of Padstow. 
my uh, dad worked in a bottle yard as uh, a labourer come foreman, which was uh, nothing flash, but he was a terrific man. He'd left school in sixth class, and he'd uh, always wanted to make sure that I was educated. I've got an older sister, and my mother was a mad gambler, and her sister was a small-time SP bookie in Sydney uh, after the war and in the 1950s. So did you grow up loving racing, or did you grow up loving the punt? No, I, I grew up, my first love as a kid was football and cricket. I wanted to play for Western Suburbs in the black and white and uh, play for Australia in both. Yeah. <laughs> only one thing beat me, ability. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like me, only one thing beat me, a physical deformity. No, no guts. <laughs> but uh, my mother used to work for my auntie uh, of a Friday night and Saturday afternoon. And I'd often be down there. Uh, with her and I I was always a great reader of things like sporting life sports novels and all that and whereas uh, probably uh, an eight and nine year old I'd read all the football and cricket stories through the interest in racing of everyone talking racing at my auntie's uh, place I uh, I started to read all the racing stories and then I got very keen and and uh, carried away with the races and from not, uh, I'd probably been once or twice, you know, with my family. But I just, I loved the uh, the atmosphere of the races, and then I got really keen and carried away with it. And in my last couple of years at school, my ambition was set. I wanted to write for the newspapers, especially on racing. And I was lucky enough to get there. So you would have been a young fella about the time that Tullock came onto the scene and started dominating. I was Tullock and Todman. Yeah. I loved Todman. <laughs> but... Uh, I'd have been uh, 12 and 13 when they were racing, 12, 13. When I, the first Golden Slipper I saw was in 1962, which was birthday card. So I missed the first five. I've seen all the others. And uh, in the 63 Slipper, I was working at the, at the newspaper, and I looked like having to miss it because I was working in the office of a Saturday, and the race was postponed to the Wednesday because of wet track where Pago Pago uh, beat Rosie Sun. And I was able to get out the Rose Hill to watch it, and I've been in the press box for every year, or either the press box or stand uh, uh, as a bookie standing on a bench looking at the race in every other year. Now, you talked about your wish to write about racing. Mm-hmm. That started from the job as a copy boy. Yes. Now, there would be people who would say, What the hell's a copy boy? What did you do in that job? Yeah, well, copy boy was virtually a messenger boy for the journalists. And I was lucky enough to, uh, from a copy boy, to get offered a job as a cadetship, uh, as a cadet journalist. Tom Brassell, one of the racing riders, went on long service leave. The sporting editor, who was a punter, had seen me at the races on Wednesdays and Thursdays and whatever, because I worked often the midnight to 7am shift. he came over to approach me and said, would I like to come over to the racing section while Tom was on long service leave? And I never went back. The rest is history. The rest is history. I used to, the girl I used to sit next to, yeah. I used to sit next to two girls. Yeah. Uh, as a, when I, first job we had as a cadet was typing out the television programs. One of the girls was Ilsa Conrads, who was a great swimmer. Oh, the Olympian. Yeah, yeah, terrific girl, fabulous girl. And the other one was a girl called Enna Torv, who became Enna Murdoch. Obviously, you were a, a bit of a sponge at that time, Kenny, and you got all the information that you could. You do, in, yeah. in time to come, of course, you would be regarded in that light. Mm. 
what did you say when young fellas coming up through the ranks asked you for a bit of advice? Well, first of all, I feel very privileged when they do and very flattered. And I think exactly what you just said, that could be me. And I love young people asking me for some advice. And uh, uh, I promise you, I always try and help them, always. And and I, I pride myself on that. That's patting myself on the back, but I do. I think that I should be trying to help them. And I think most young guys are responsive. So you get to see all of this wonderful racing as a journo, a print journo. Where did the transition come? I want to ask you one thing. It's just popped into my head. When I go to the races and I ask about you and everyone says, oh, Deffy's over there. Where did Deffy come from? Uh, I was born deaf in my right ear. Uh, It can't be fixed. No cochlear implant or anything. There's no nerve there. Uh, My mother wasted money trying to get it fixed. And my wife in recent years has tried to cart me. God knows how many hearing aids I've, I've wasted money on. But nothing can be... I, it's totally deaf in my right ear. There's no sound, no nerve, no nothing. Uh, can't be amplified. Uh, fortunately, my left ear has been pretty good, although probably not quite as good as it was. And uh, kids are probably a little bit cruel, but even from a young age, everyone called me deafy. Uh, never, has never, ever worried me. Mm. I don't. I probably don't like my own kids calling me deafy. You know, I'd rather call me dad. Yeah, that's being honest. Uh, the transition, Kenny, from uh, the print journal all of a sudden to wide world of sports and the role that so many people know about you. Where did that happen? Yeah, I, I was in my late 20s and Jeff Prenter, who was a well-known rugby league writer in Sydney and was editor of the Rugby League Week after having worked at the Sydney Sun, he came to me one day or phoned me, I'm not sure, and he said, Deffy, I might have a job for you. He said, Channel 9 have got John Tapp playing the races of a Sunday and they need someone to sort of, for him to run off to comment on the horses. Now, they're going to trial about three blokes and whoever goes off best is going to get the job. He said, I've recommended you to Ron Casey. That was the Sydney one yeah. Casey, who was uh, the producer and the mainstay of the show. So I went in there... Uh, and I must hit it off because I got a permanent job out of that, and the rest is history. And when David Hill came to Channel 9 with all these different ideas, uh, it catapulted my role. I used to be on the Sydney footy show a bit and things like that, But uh, and also brought me uh, my own radio shows. I had a few radio shows which were really because I become known on the television. Was that at 2GB, that radio 2GB, show? yep. Yeah. And uh, I did work at 2KY for about five years in the 90s, but... Uh, my success on radio was at 2GB. Tell us about your relationship with Tappy. What a great man. What a brilliant broadcaster. And what a beautiful man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, look, John Tapp and I were really uh, made for each other because we had totally different interests off air. Like, at the end of the road, uh, if we'd gone away to Melbourne, to, we'd go and have a drink together. Uh, and we got on terrific. We never had a bad word. We'd, if he heard a good joke, he'd ring up and tell me. He'd, he rang me up about uh, three weeks ago. But where John loved uh, playing his guitar, mucking around with his trotters. Mm. I was more into uh, having a drink and telling a few lies at the pub or, <laughs> or uh, perhaps having a game of golf. So we, we span off each other. Uh, I like John very much, uh, and I, I'm, I think he likes me. It became an iconic show. Um, with yourself and with Mike Gibson and Chappelle. And, of course, Billy Birmingham yeah, saw that yeah. and 
produced all of those records. Mm. They say that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Did you take it that way? Oh, very much so. And, you know, uh, Billy Birmingham said that I was the easiest to take off with all the S's and finger thong of six and sweet and Sally. And once Billy Birmingham started, that's when the uh, Sydney Football Show on Channel 9 started to use me. They'd have me bringing a pizza into uh, some blonde with uh, big bucks and blonde, and I'd have to say things like, who ordered the uh, sagacious sweet... <laughs> and all this anyway said uh they were the good days and uh i enjoyed billy birmingham how are you hitting the white ball too often (laughs) (laughs) a bit of army golf yeah uh, left right left right richard one of my other sons says dad you have more hits than the beatles (laughs) i think that anyone who heard this program today will remember seeing you on television, remember reading your articles, but they get an insight into Ken Callender, the man, and that's the great thing about this format, that um, we learn a bit about you and your principles. And I said to you in our last commercial break, that's one of the reasons that you're so highly regarded and so respected in the industry. Not only that stand that you took at the Daily Telegraph, but always the fact that you've always been one to come up, say good day, have a smile on your face, and it was just a good time being at the races. Thanks, Peter. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. But a champion becomes a legend. Maccabi Debra has won it. Perkins goes in first. What a legend. What a champion. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. We've spoken to many people who have been involved in the media in sport in Australia. Today, John Tapp, welcome. Thank you very much, Peter. Ken called me after having recorded the interview with you. He said, it's a great show. He said, Pete is a terrific host and you should do it when you possibly can. Well, I loved every bit of talking to him and I'm going to love every bit of talking to you because I want to relive your story. I must say, haven't seen you for a while, but you look really well. Well, thank you. That's the nicest compliment you could have paid me because I am getting a bit long in the tooth. I turned 77 last October. I don't know how you're supposed to feel at 77, but I feel pretty good. Uh, I've been fortunate, Pete, that uh, I was able to kick the cigarettes a long, long time ago. You and me both, That's yes. the smartest thing I've ever done. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I try to keep the weight off and walk a lot. I don't try to break any records and... I'd be very long odds in the stall gift. <laughs> but at, at 77, walking is enough. But you were very active up until a few years ago because a lot of people may not have known. They, they know your voice and they know your involvement with Thoroughbreds, but you were heavily involved in the harness racing industry for a long time. More heavily than I ever intended to be, actually. Uh, I've been hobby training them for over 30 years, one or two horses at a time. But I always felt as though I wasn't giving horse training my best shot. And I wanted to really apply myself to it uh, for a specified length of time to see if I could uh, promote any success. And, you know, at one stage, about eight, 18 years ago, I had 24 horses in work. Wow. Far more than I ever intended. It's just the way it happened. 
Uh, I was fortunate to have the support of some wonderful owners and a lot of friends who enjoyed uh, being in ownership syndicates. Next thing, I've got 24 horses around me and, and quite a number of staff, but that didn't last long. I couldn't handle that at all. I quickly whittled that back to 10 or 12, and I, I remained at that number uh, for quite a long time. I was fortunate uh, to have a f half a dozen really nice horses, uh, one in particular, a horse called Chariot King, who won a total of 30 races, mm. uh, and he won a couple of Group 1s, by far and away the best horse I ever trained. Uh, he was a mate, a, a lovely horse with exquisite manners and just a delight to be around him. Now, the one thing that Kenny Callender probably would have told you is that this program, under my stewardship, jumps from the start to the beginning to the end and then back again <laughs> and all over the place. Let's go back a little bit. When yeah. you first decided that Ken Howard had such an impression on you and you wanted yeah. to call races, mm. everybody has a way of finding out whether they can learn to identify colours. Is the story about the icy pole sticks true with you? Oh, absolutely. You call them icy pole sticks. There was a product called Paddle Pops. I don't know if they still exist. I think they do. But they are technically an icy pole stick. Yeah. So you're half right. And people tended to eat them and throw the sticks away. And the streets of Cogra and most other Sydney suburbs were littered with them. So it didn't take me long to gather up a clutch of paddle pop sticks. And with the fertile imagination of a 10-year-old, I'd get myself into the backyard shed where people tend to put those tiny little tins of paint. Uh, all of us will buy that little tiny tin of paint to yeah. patch up a scratch on something and I was able to get myself reds and yellows and blues and blacks and whites and I started to paint the paddle pop sticks with one of those tiny little brushes trying to uh, emulate the actual colours of the great horses of that era. Carioca, red paddle pop stick with a white sash and a dark blue tip on one end to represent the cap. Uh, and I did this with checks and stripes and all sorts of patterns and designs. And then I'd grade them, Peter. I'd have a maiden handicap, a novice, and encourage. Uh, then I'd get up to the group ones, uh, although that term wasn't used in that era. Mm. Uh, but I had a Chipping Norton Stakes and uh, an Epsom and a Doncaster and all the famous races. And I would leap into the stormwater channel uh, close to home at Cogra where there was an ever-present current of water two inches deep, travelling at a pretty good rate. And it went for miles through Carlton and Cogra and Rockdale and beyond. So I had a big racetrack. And I could throw a clutch of paddle pop sticks into the current of water and walk beside them for a long distance, calling them as though they were real racehorses. If one of them got snagged on a pebble, that'd be a severe check. <laughs> that, that horse would lose four lengths, <laughs> you know. And this is how, uh, this is how I learned to identify colours and put a name to them. You know, last fifteen months ago, I took my daughter and her partner for a drive around that area, 
She'd heard me talk about the paddle pop sticks a thousand times and the stormwater channel that had been my racetrack. And I actually took her to the very spot where I used to leap into the stormwater channel. It's wow. still there. It is unchanged. It could have been 1955. Mm. And I felt very quite emotional, really. A lot of people have grandstands named after them or statues. Maybe we could have the John Tapp stormwater drain. <laughs> what a good idea. <laughs> what a good idea. Uh, when we come back, Tappy, we'll find out where the first big break came for you in your wonderful career. What a pleasure and an honour it is to have John Tapp as my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. More with Tappy coming up after the break. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hope you're enjoying the chat with the great John Tapp as much as I am on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Tappy, we've talked about the early steps, but eventually the time would come where you would be the number one man. How did that all come about? Ken announced his retirement. Uh, obviously, I had some prior knowledge that he was close to making the announcement. He made that announcement at a Saturday meeting at Rose Hill in the middle of 1973 it was a dramatic moment because it was truly the end of a great era it was the termination of a career of a true pioneer of Australian race broadcasting and a humbling moment for me because this man had been my god and I had the privilege to step into his shoes and what a gigantic pair of shoes they were. They were a size 27. Did that weigh heavily on your shoulders? Did you feel as though in some ways, whilst you were delighted to take the job, that you were on a kick up the backside to nothing because oh, this man had been revered by you and so many millions of others at the time? Yeah. Was that the way you felt? Peter, he was... People, it's hard for people to understand nowadays how famous this man was. Mm. His voice was the, I believe, the, the, the nucleus of his fame. Um, his voice was known in every pub and every club, every SP betting shop, every interstate betting ring, every network radio station. They knew it was Ken Howard. I had cause to walk down the street with him one day. Uh, we had to go from 2GB and Phillips Street in those days uh, to a, a luncheon, uh, a 10-minute walk away, and people were yelling out at him from one side of the road to the other. Hey, Ken! I could hear them say, that's Ken Howard, because he was on Channel 9. He, he was seen often on Channel 9 on the famous Clarence the Clocker program and Saturday Night News and other programs, World of Sport on a Sunday, uh, doing the racing replays. He was a very, very famous person. I'm about to take over from this famous person. It's a bit intimidating. I'll bet it was. But eventually, to a degree, you would have the same thing happen to you because there's not one person listening to this, I would think, that wouldn't know that it was you who was speaking, even if they hadn't heard the introduction to this program. 
your voice has just become a soundtrack for a lot of what's happened in racing. Where did you get the accuracy and the passion that was displayed over your great career? Where did you get it to go to another level? Because it appeared as though you got better as you went on. Pete, I think the passion was there from the first day I jumped into the Stormwater Channel. Mm. I always had the passion. I still have it. Um, There's something about the outside of a horse that's good for the inside of a man. Uh, Something that I think I've lived by for 50 years. But the accuracy factor was a result of, of... my observing something that was happening to Ken Howard late in his career. Ken was a showman first and foremost. He was a great race caller, but he was a showman number one. As I said earlier, he could make a Gosford maiden sound like a a group one at Royal Randwick. Ken would have them coming home at 100 miles an hour when it was obvious they were struggling or very gradually picking up the leaders. But Channel 9 were doing more and more by way of replays at that time. And people suddenly started to relate what they were seeing on World of Sport on Sunday with what they'd heard on radio the day before. It wasn't quite the same. And I could tell this was going to be the beginning of the end for Ken Howard. Uh, he, he couldn't change. He wouldn't change. It was too late. He'd been doing it that way for many, many years. His style had taken him to legendary status. So he wasn't going to change. But I could see that I had to be different. And Ian Craig and I discussed this many times very early in our careers It's got to be accuracy number one, Mm. Uh, possibly logic number two, try not to make silly statements, and colour third. There has to be colour. I mean, it's the greatest show on earth, and you've got to bring that into people's lounge rooms. But accuracy has to come first once television took hold. And that was my next question about television taking hold, because you talked about the replays that would go on. That was the first step with Ken getting towards the end of his career. But you were doing races on live television all the time, so you had to be accurate. Yeah. Otherwise, it was just not going to translate to the medium. And that was something that you always were. I don't think I ever heard you stumble calling a race. Oh, well, I did. I don't think I ever heard it. <laughs> I did. You, were, you I just did. seemed so... It was almost like you were reading from a script, and I say this as the biggest compliment that I could pay, that it sounded like you were in control of everything that was going on the minute they jumped out of those starting gates. Yeah, well, Peter, it's lovely of you to say that, and I I take it as a a wonderful compliment. That wasn't always the case, obviously. Uh, I mean, race callers get into trouble often. Uh, You know, a set of colours will be suddenly obscured, Uh, you just can't quite pick up the horse in question. And there's another point. Panic is forbidden. That feeling of of being gripped by panic when you can't see a horse, and it might be the favourite. You know, 
Everybody wants to know where the favourite is. You can't see him up front. You can't see him out the back. It might be him, but I, I can't risk it. And that's where panic takes hold, and you've got to learn to handle the panic factor. What's, what's the one you're most proud of? Probably one of Kingston Towns. Uh, I just love the horse. It was a privilege and a very exciting thing to call him in his races. I think I called 19 of his 30 wins. I can still see him winning the Sydney Cup as a three-year-old, going three-quarter pace, three lengths in front of the horse who'd won the Sydney Cup the year before, double century. Um, his win in the AJC Derby, uh, there was a horse of great character, great appearance, great presence, great action, great acceleration. You talk about ticking every box, Kingston Town. I'd be excited on Saturday morning, waiting to get there just to try and convey my passion for him. It took a hell of a lot for Winks to depose Kingston Town as my all-time favourite, but I think she's better. Did you ever get to call the Melbourne Cup? Under the strangest of circumstances, I did three. The first two, you'll remember well, 74, 75, think bigs two years. Now, there were a, a small number of radio stations in Sydney and on the New South Wales network who had no network affiliations. They had no way of taking a split of the Melbourne Cup of, of those years, 74, 75. They all... Uh, contacted 2GB Macquarie seeking a split of the Melbourne Cup call. Now to be sending Ken Howard out to too many different avenues was fraught with danger. So they decided to just form a separate tiny little network of five or six stations and they sent me down to call the Melbourne Cup to that tiny little network. I had thoughts at the time that no one will hear this. But the strangest thing happened. My eldest son, David, was still at school. He knew that one of the stations my call uh, would be heard on was 2SM in Sydney. His school teacher, in the period pertaining to Melbourne Cup starting time, brought a transistor radio into the classroom and said to the students, I'm going to let you listen to the Melbourne Cup from a cultural viewpoint. This is an iconic sporting event in our country. You should be allowed to hear it. What station do I get it on, said the teacher. My son David said, 2SM. <laughs> this is true. So my elder boy David, we still talk about it, heard my call of Think Big's second Melbourne Cup win on 2SM in Sydney. Mm. But the following year, same, same deal. I think I'm going to Melbourne for a little group of stations, independent of the main network. I got a message at the hotel early on the Tuesday morning that Channel 9 were going to telecast that Melbourne Cup. It was an 11th hour decision and that they'd be taking my call. Vanderham. Oh, I'll say no more. How did you go with it? Because oh, it, terrible. They should never. Well, had it been any other race apart from the Melbourne Cup, mm. it wouldn't have been. It right. would have been off. Absolutely yeah. no shadow of doubt. It was 
the most bizarre, eerie day I have ever spent in a broadcasting box. Well, I was standing, as a young fellow, I was standing in front of the broadcasting boxes that day when that cup was run. You could not tell one from the other. Oh, it was awful. Ken Howard used to say on a wet day, the jockeys' mothers wouldn't know. (laughs) (laughs) That applied to Bandaham, but I struggled through... There was something about his action that helped me to identify him. He had a lot of action in front. Mm. He was a buff-headed sort of a horse. And his colours were uh, grey and green from memory, and they were just all black, you know. Most of the horses in the race were all black. Uh, But again, the saddlecloth number. I thought, I'd better just do a double check. I think it was number nine. Mm. And was I pleased to see the nine on the saddlecloth? John, you've been so synonymous with Sydney racing. Did it complete something when you were able to call the Melbourne Cup because of the status of the race in this country and now around the world? Absolutely. I I guess there there was a a fair bit of unfinished business, you know, when I I retired 20 years ago now. uh, I never got to call a night race in Sydney. That would have been an exciting thing. I never got to call a harness race on this new iconic Menangle track. Mm. Uh, that would have been great fun. Uh, but you can't do everything. Mm. And life goes on, and it involves so many different facets apart from racing. One thing that has been dear to your heart and to your wife Anne's heart is raising money for a cure for diabetes because it's touched you personally. I have a diabetic son, Peter, Paul, who is coming up 53 years of age now he contracted diabetes at age 8 he's been insulin dependent since the age of 8 his dedication uh, to his problems have, have been unwavering he's done everything by the book and he really didn't deserve the fate uh, that overtook him about 12 years ago when he lost his eyesight for the last 12, close to 13 years now, he's been totally blind. Uh, both retinas detached. And they were able to control it with laser for quite a long time, but eventually his sight slipped away. His transition into his new life uh, was quite amazing to, to watch and to observe. His attitude from the, the outset has been far better than I would ever have mustered given the same circumstances. I'm extremely proud of the way he's handled uh, a plight of this magnitude. He's he's jovial, he's cheerful. I see him often, uh, loves a joke, uh, extremely fond of the opposite sex. Nothing wrong with that, Tappy. (laughs) If ever he hears uh, a female voice in the vicinity when I take him for a cup of coffee, he uses his stock expression... Describe her to me. <laughs> <laughs> and so you and Anne have devoted a lot of time and energy into raising money for the Diabetes Foundation. Diabetes Australia, the Variety Club of Australia, yeah. who look after underprivileged children all over the world, a magnificent charity organisation, Bear Cottage and several others. I can't take the accolades um, in all conscience. Peter, because Anne is the mainstay of our operation when it comes to 
fundraising. She does all of the hard work behind the scenes and she's become very proficient at the art. Uh, I just turn up on the night. Uh, I might act as MC and I take all the accolades. <laughs> but she really deserves them. Well, I'm sure you're selling yourself short there. And she's actually got herself another project at the moment. Yes, her first grandchild, my fourth but in her case, um, it's grandchild number one, darling little girl turning one as we speak uh, with a celebration over the weekend. Tappy, there's so much we haven't been able to touch on. I wish we had more time. But my final question to you is, if you're standing in a broadcast box somewhere and some young wide-eyed caller comes in and wants to do what you did for all of those years... What would be the piece of advice that you would give him or her? Before their call or after? Both. Yeah. Before, I would try not to be too intrusive uh, because I'd be extremely cognizant of their, uh, their nerves and their apprehension. So I wouldn't say too much before other than a few words of encouragement. After, you've only got to look at their wide-eyed look these kids uh, Graham McNeese and I had the honor to talk to a lot of them at the most recent Sky Academy you can't help but be overtaken by their enthusiasm and their, ze their zeal uh, their passion their desire their ambition it's it's, it's overpowering mm. Pete you just wish every one of them could be a star that's what I wish for them, each and every one of them. Well, you had some very kind words for a young wide-eyed caller back before the 1983 Melbourne Cup. A young fellow was going out to call his one and only Melbourne Cup that day. And that was me, and you wished me well that day, and I've never forgotten it. You're an icon, you're a legend, and it's been an honour to sit down with you. Pete, the honour has been mine, and the pleasure has been immeasurable. Thanks for having me. John Tapp, a very special edition of This Is Your Sporting Life, a Tobin Brothers funeral celebrating lives, and we'll be back with another great of Australian sport, same time next week. See you then. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.